in that report for 2020, they tell us that the number is now 260 million Christians. One out of every eight believers will experience high levels of persecution in this world today. Almost 3,000 followers of Christ were killed this last year because of their faith. That's eight Christians a day. So your little group of eight that you have in your mind right now, you can see that group in a couple of different ways. First of all, you can see it as one of you, one of those eight, will face massive persecution in your life because of your faith. Or you can see that all eight of you, believers, will have died in one day because of your faith. Earlier in 2020, in Nigeria, there was a pastor who gave praise to God in a ransom video, and he was beheaded because he would not recant his faith. In North Korea, the number one on the persecution list, Christians are deported to labor camps as political criminals, or even killed right there on the spot. Uh, Meeting other Christians for worship is nearly impossible unless you do that in complete secrecy. Last year, if many of you recall, uh, in Sri Lanka on Easter Sunday, three churches were bombed, resulting in 29 adults and 14 children being killed. Now, today, China is utilizing a social score system that grades its citizens based on their actions. And it, it, uh, they have now installed surveillance cameras to monitor Christian activity. The government has actually been shutting down home churches uh, for their refusal to put surveillance cameras up in their homes or to put the, a picture of President Jinping at the center of their worship platforms. Now, why do I bring this up? This is not the kind of inspiration that we are expecting to come to when we come to church on Sundays, is it? It completely blows my mind that I personally rarely think about the kind of persecution that goes on in this world when I come to church on a weekly basis. I take it completely for granted that I still have the freedom to come and worship God and come to church without any uh, threat of the government uh, coming in and, and shutting me down. But again, why do I bring it up? Well, first of all, because today is actually the International Day of Prayer for the persecuted church. And secondly, because of the Beatitudes that we're going through in this series on the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus begins the sermon with these blessings, with these uh, statements of God's favor uh, towards those people who are living as citizens in the upside-down kingdom, this, this last Beatitude is all about persecution. And by the way, this was not my timing, by the way. This was not intentional. Uh, I had intended to go through the Beatitudes like that, maybe taking three weeks on them. I knew that I wanted to spend one full Sunday talking about the persecuted church because of the last Beatitude. But I, I figured that we would be done back in October. But just the way that everything laid itself out, the way that God had laid things out, we we took our time in the first four of the Beatitudes, and then last week we were able to hit five, six, and seven all in one sermon, leaving today the, the day that we're talking about persecution. 
as I was talking to Ann Andrews, who is the chairman of our missions committee, about uh, maybe having something up for Open Doors and for the Voice of the Martyrs, she actually said, Trey, you know, I think the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church is coming up. I said, really? So I got online to see what it was. (laughs) And in God's providence, today, the day that it just so happened that we were going to be talking about, blessed are those who are persecuted, It is the International Day of Prayer for the persecuted church. I don't believe that this is an accident at all. So we've been studying the Beatitudes, living in the upside-down kingdom, God's favor being extended to those who experience life change. But here's the truth in our world, folks. When people's lives change, apparently not everybody likes that. Not everybody stands up and applauds that life change. Uh, I'm not sure why, except for that Satan does set himself against everything that is good and of God. And just as Satan opposes life change, it's clear that transferring your citizenship from this world into God's kingdom makes some people very, very angry. Operating under the influence of our great enemy, the devil, these folks are not just content to agree to disagree with us, they are actually engaged in a full force, full-on war against God and his people, the church. Well, take your Bibles and go to Matthew chapter 5 today. Matthew, again, is the first of the Gospels in the New Testament. And in chapter 5, this is where we begin the Sermon on the Mount. And this is what Jesus says as he concludes the Beatitudes, starting in verse 10. He says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Virginia, we're going to go back to that last slide in a little bit, but, uh, so just be ready to go back to that when I, when I tell you. See, this is why I begin speaking about this very real, very much contemporary, very brutal persecution of the church in this world. To your left, there are a couple tables over there where uh, Troy is sitting. Uh, you will see on those two tables a couple of organizations, the Voice of the Martyrs and Open Doors, two ministries that have been on the, the front lines in researching and then letting people know about the startling presence of persecution in our world today. And I'm talking about a, a persecution that you and I do not understand in our culture. I'm talking about people losing their lives and their loved ones. People who are actually being tortured or having their property confiscated all because they have expressed faith in Jesus. And so over there on that table, those two tables, you will find some amazing information about the persecuted church. We've also taken one of our prayer stations, the one in the back there that used to have the mirror, and that will, for the month of November, be a prayer station that you can come in a little bit early to worship and prepare your hearts, and you can see there how you can pray for the persecuted church today. I, I, see, I, I, think, I think it's too easy for us Western Christians to become insulated 
to the, the reality of the dangers of being a disciple of Jesus. It's too easy for us to become spoiled. And, and we'll use that term persecution to, to describe things that are far less horrendous than what's going on in this world today with our brothers and sisters right now. Now, can that be a frightening thing? Uh, of course it can. With, without the proper perspective, I, I believe it very much can be very scary. But there was a song that I learned a long time ago back in the 70s that helps me understand the real truth about the times that we live in. It, it goes like this. It's, it's very similar to the, the song that we just sang about peace I leave with you. But it's a very simple song. It starts out, the world didn't give us his love. The world didn't give us his love. The world didn't give us his love. And if the world didn't give it, then the world can't take it away. And then we talk about the joy. The world won't give us his joy. The world won't give us his joy. The world won't give us his joy. And if the world won't give it, then the world can't take it away. And then here's the kicker one. The world didn't give us his peace. The world didn't give us his peace. No, the world didn't give us his peace. And if the world can't give it, then the world can't take it away. If the world can't give it, then the world can't take it away. See, that's what I need to stand on, that truth. That God's peace will transcend anything that the world can do. And I can actually hold on to that peace. Because if the world didn't give it, then it doesn't matter what's happening in the world. The world will not be able to take that peace away. Early on in the book of Acts, which is the record of the Holy Spirit moving through the the first century disciples in, in great power, we see that it didn't take very long for, that, for, for the church to come under heavy fire and persecution from the religious leaders of their day. Lives were being changed again. And apparently the religious leaders were not thrilled that lives were being changed. I, I believe mainly because it wasn't done in their authority the way that they wanted it to be done. It was being done in the name and the authority of Jesus Christ, the guy that they had tried to get rid of, but who kept popping up very inconveniently for them. In Acts chapter 5, we see the ruling leaders, uh, the, the ruling party, the religious ruling party. They've arrested the apostles. They put them into prison, both to embarrass them and to intimidate them because it was done in a public way, in a public prison. And then they brought them before the Sanhedrin, the, the council. And they eventually were released after being flogged and ordered to not preach in the name of Jesus ever again. And in verse 41, we read of a fascinating, fascinating thing that happens. Right after they've endured this horrible ordeal, Acts 5.41 tells us that the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace. For the name, and the name was Jesus. Virginia, go back to that one slide from the the, the last part that I I told you to, where Jesus said, rejoice. One more, one more. And actually, go go to the next one. There it is. Jesus told his disciples to rejoice. Well, that doesn't make sense at all. 
That, that doesn't make sense to rejoice when you are going through tough times, when people are opposing you and falsely saying all kinds of evil against you. Rejoice, Jesus said, because in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That doesn't make sense on a human level. It isn't natural to rejoice when you are persecuted. It's unnatural to actually think of that as a blessing. But God's perspective is so much different than the world's. I I want you today to imagine, to consider what God thinks about the persecution of his saints. It might actually surprise you. Because first of all, through God's perspective, we understand this. God's people should never be frightened. God's people should never be frightened. Why? Because God is not surprised. God's not surprised. We, we panic when things happen that's, that, that we're surprised about, or when, when things happen without our being aware of it. But there's something comforting about having a God who is all-knowing and all-seeing, because we can trust that God to work through whatever situation that we face, including persecution. Do you you know what Jesus actually told his disciples the night before he would go to the cross? John chapter 15 tells us, this is Jesus talking to his disciples. He says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Twelve hours later, Jesus would be on a cross. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not, you do not belong to this world. But I've chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. So remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you as well. See, Jesus wasn't surprised at what would happen to him the very next day. Jesus wasn't surprised what would happen to the early church in that first century. Jesus would not be surprised today at the persecution that is happening around the world. And he told us that we shouldn't be surprised. When we choose to live in an upside-down kingdom, people are not going to like that because we're going against the flow. But Jesus said, I'm telling you this ahead of time so that when it does happen, your hearts will not be troubled. See, the God who is in control The God who is in control, we must have faith that he is, in fact, in control. That cannot just be a bumper sticker. That can't just be a platitude, folks. No matter what happens this Tuesday, rubber meets the road, folks. No matter who wins the election, God is in control. Though it seemed like the Jewish leaders had gotten their way, by getting rid of Jesus, by crucifying him on a cross, God was in control. Though the church began to be persecuted, and the the disciples were called to adopt the attitude that God is in control. Why is that important? Because if you know that God is in control, and you know that your God is all-powerful, then you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be frightened. Jesus told us it was going to happen. God's not surprised. God's people should not be frightened. Second of all, God's plan will never be frustrated. God's plan will never be frustrated. You you know, I I read about the final battle in Revelation. It's it's a pretty amazing thing. It's it's actually kind of anticlimactic 
Because as you read through the, the, the book of Revelation, it just seems to all be coming up to a head. And finally, all of these armies are, are gathered to, to oppose God. Thousands and th- tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in these armies ready to fight against God. And one guy, Jesus Christ, shows up on a white horse. And in one swoop, whew, hundreds of thousands of people gone. And you're like, well, that was it? That was it? That, that's all that the devil could have summoned up against God? See, the devil is not God's equal. It's not like the force where there's a dark side and a light side. God created Satan. Satan is not his equal and his opposite. God, God will never be frustrated. God's plan will never be frustrated. Now, if our lives as disciples would go as smoothly as we would hope that them to be, if we were truly promised a bed of roses, then opposition coming would make us frustrated and confused. But have you ever considered that God's plan for us in this fallen world isn't so that we would just have a great life? This is not in my notes. But I was over at the, uh, the, the prayer table, and uh, there's some wonderful literature. This, this is 10 Ways to Pray for the Persecuted Church. This is from The Voice of the Martyrs. As I look, I want to read to you the the 10 ways to pray, okay? Then I'm going to make my observation that I just made this morning. Number one, pray that they would sense God's presence. Number two, that they would know the greater body of Christ is actually standing with them in prayer. Number three, you would pray that they would experience God's comfort when they are persecuted. Number four, you pray that God would open doors to evangelism. Number five, pray that they would be able to boldly share the gospel. Number six, that they would be able to forgive and to love those who persecute them. Number seven, that they would be granted wisdom in covert ministry work. That's staying underground, secretive. Number eight, we would pray that they would remain joyful amidst the suffering. Number nine, that they would become mature in their faith. And number ten, that they would be rooted in God's word. You know what I do not see on this list of what to pray for? We're not praying that the persecution stops. That they would have an easy life. Because that's not reality. The world can't give us his peace. In fact, the world will always set itself against God. So they will always have persecution. I bet 90% of you, like me, had no idea that that's not something that we would pray for. Oh, Lord, please keep them away from persecution. God says, no, they're going to be persecuted. Why? Because they're standing in an upside-down kingdom that looks so wrong to the world. And the world is against it and wants to tear it down. There will be persecution. We don't pray that there won't be. We just pray that they use that persecution for the glory of God of God. God's plan will never be frustrated. You see, I, Romans 8.28, that's one of those passages that I think, I, I mean, I, I think people were, 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 they had good intentions. But sometimes we misunderstand that verse. Some of you have even memorized Romans 8.28. We know that in all things God works together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. 
I've heard sermons about that, how God just wants to bring good things to you, good things to to the people around the world. He just wants them to to be good. All, All good things happen to them. What, what do you do with scriptures then like Job that says, that Job asks his friends, should we accept good from God and not calamity? Now, that was a rhetorical question because obviously we do. Jesus would say later on in the Sermon on the Mount that God brings rain on both the just and the unjust. He makes his sun to shine on the righteous and on the evil. Okay? It's not just good that he wants to bring to us. It says that God will work for the good for those who are called, here's the key, according to his purpose. See, we forget that. You see, God's purpose is to use whatever we're going through, whatever trial, as Pastor Andy was was reading, whatever trial to, to bring about his purpose. That's what that verse means. The good God brings about for his purpose, all the things that are going to come to us, the good that he wants for us is to bring about his purpose. And there are two things that he purposes. Number one, he purposes to recreate you into the image of Jesus. And number two, his purpose is to bring more and more people into the kingdom. Okay, think about those two purposes. His purpose is to make you more like Jesus. And number two, his purpose is to bring more and more people into a right relationship with himself. And so when we read James chapter 1, like Andy read to us today, a notorious chapter dealing with trials, keep in mind, James was writing to a group of Christians who were living under intense persecution. The trials that he was speaking of were very real trials, threatening people's livelihoods and their lives. And yet, James tells us to consider it pure joy whenever we encounter many trials because you know that the testing of our faith develops perseverance. You see, here, here's something that you got to get into your mind as we look at the persecuted church. God is actually more concerned about your character than your comfort. He cares way more about your character, you becoming like Jesus, than he cares about making you happy and comfortable. Now that seems very unloving and calloused for some people, but it, Come on, guys, if you were a parent, you you understand that sometimes you allow your child to go through some tough times. Why? Because you know that that will help them grow. So that's the first thing. The second thing is this. Though God loves you and is pleased to have a relationship with you, when you became a Christian, when you accepted Jesus into your heart, when you walked into the waters of baptism, if it was only about you going to heaven, bam, you should have gone to heaven. Boy, that, that would be a, quite the a baptism service, by the way. We have 15 people going to heaven today uh, as we baptize 15 people. And, and yet, we don't go automatically to heaven as soon as we are baptized. Why? Because we are now recruited to a higher purpose for our life. Not to build our own kingdom, but now to build the kingdom of Christ. That, that, and God will use persecution for that purpose as well. There's a passage in Romans chapter 12 that has confused Christians. Romans 12, starting in verse 14, has a number of insights, though, that speak to the power of God using opposition to build his kingdom. Paul would say, bless those who persecute you. He would go on to say, don't repay anyone evil for evil. 
Don't take revenge. On the contrary, he says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, I used to hear that as a kid and said, yeah, yeah, let's, let's throw burning coals on somebody's head. We'll kill him with kindness. That's not what Paul means here, folks. Burning coal, if you do a study about burning coal in the Bible, you'll find out that burning coal is actually very beneficial. It typically represents something being purified. For example, back in Isaiah, Isaiah gets to see the glory of the Lord filling the temple. And as he stands in the presence of God, he falls on his face and goes, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Right then and there, an angel flew down, came to the altar where the burning coals were, and with tongs picked up one of those live coals, those burning coals, and came down and touched Isaiah's lips. Not to punish him, not to harm him, but to purify him. So I believe what Paul is saying back in Romans chapter 12 is that if our response to persecution is in in alignment with God's purposes and God's perspective, there's going to be something far more important than our comfort. There's this higher purpose that maybe God will use our response to bring about purification for those people who are persecuting us. You say, well, I can't guarantee that. No, no. No, you can't guarantee that. But that has happened in our history before where people have been kind to their persecutors and that's just gotten into the craw of the persecutor and eventually that persecutor comes to know who Jesus Christ is. So God will allow persecution because sometimes he'll use that to actually build his kingdom and bring more and more people into his right relationship. God will always get the glory And he will use whatever trial comes our way to strengthen us and to prepare us for the spiritual onslaught that often occurs in our life when we choose sides. One last thing to consider. When you take a look at all the stories of the Bible, like the one we read about, about the disciples who were thrown into prison after preaching the gospel, these stories tell us how the trials allow God to have the spotlight where his presence and his power are needed. And when he does show up, folks, he is given the glory. Last thing, God's promise will never falter. God's promise will never falter. I spoke of Revelation earlier. As a child, Revelation scared me. It was very, very scary. Like other people, it scares them. All the time about dragons and and beasts and fire and locusts and all those imageries that, that, that is used by John seem so fantastical, sometimes bizarre. So as a kid, reading Revelation actually kind of scared me. In fact, I, I, I told Jesus, I don't want you to come back while I'm still alive, please. Because I, I don't want to witness all of these horrendous things that are going to go on. By the way, this past week, I, I have been praying that, that Jesus returns now. Even before Tuesday, that would be awesome. If Jesus would say, I, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding, I just, what, what, let's just end this all and, and come up to, to me. But the purpose for John to write the book of Revelation was exactly the opposite of what my response was. Because Jesus gave us the revelation so that we would not be frightened. 
He gave the revelation to people who were facing this intense persecution. They needed to be comforted. They needed to know a few things. Number one, they needed to know that it will be a struggle living as a disciple of Jesus in this broken world. Number two, the purpose was to show that even believers will not be immune to death or persecution during that struggle. Number three, that God will one day put an end to all evil, redeeming not just mankind, but even the heavens and the earth themselves. Number four, we win in the end. And number five, there will be justice and there will be rewards for those who have stood firm in their faith. Revelation 2, 7. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life. Revelation 2, 26. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. Revelation 7, 3. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Revelation 14. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. They will rest from their labor. Their deeds will follow them. The, the, the blessing for being persecuted is really more of an after this life thing. That's why Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not just the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of heaven. If you actually t- take your Bibles real quick and go to Revelation chapter 6. I don't have this as a slide because, again, God keeps throwing stuff to me. I'm going, but I'm done with the sermon. And God says, no, you're not. Revelation chapter 6. Look at verses 9 through 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? And then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. You see that, yes, there will be people who die for their faith. But God takes care of them and gives them comfort and dresses them in white and says, I will avenge. I will avenge. You just wait for my plan to unfold. Too often we think that we should get all of our rewards here on earth. We complain. We tell other people, well, I've done what God wants me to do. Where has it gotten me? It's not fair that the wicked in this life prosper. You know, those are the exact words of one of the psalmists, one of the men who wrote the psalms, a guy named Asaph. In Psalm 73, Asaph struggles with the fact that the wicked seem sometimes better off than than, than the righteous, that there is no reward for those who do good in this life. But then his perspective changes he, he gets the Lord's perspective as he meets God there in the sanctuary. Again, God's perspective is given to him. And in that perspective, in verse 24 and 25, this is what Asaph observes in Psalm 73. He says, God, you guide me with your counsel. And afterward, 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 you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? 
And why should I stay here? Because earth has nothing I desire besides you. So yes, there might be some accounts settled here on earth. But ultimately, folks, this world is not our home. There's going to be a recreated heaven and a recreated earth, and that will be our eternal home. And Jesus promises us that though persecution may lead to uh, maybe us going into and, and experiencing the first death, we are safe from going through the second death. And not only that, but there will be a great reward in that heavenly home. At the end of the passage that Pastor Andy read this morning, James tells us that we will receive the crown of life at the end of time of trial. And so as we come today recognizing the international day of prayer for the persecuted church. I want us to keep this issue in front of us, not just today, but for this entire month of November. I want us, with God's perspective in mind, to stand with our brothers and sisters around the world who are trusting in God's plan and purpose, dedicating themselves to living in an upside-down kingdom, no matter who or what stands in their way. I want us to take encouragement in knowing that through God's power, standing in faith is possible through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I want us to pray for those who are persecuted, that they will be able to stay faithful through it all and have a testimony for God's power until the day they step into eternity and gain their reward. And finally, I I want us to pray for the fruit of their labor, that their persecution would not have been in vain, but that people would be won over to the gospel message through their faithful testimony. DC, if you and the worship team would come on up, we're getting ready to, uh, to end today. The world didn't give us his love. That love was unique because no greater love has anyone than this that he would lay down his life and no greater love has ever been shown to mankind. The world won't give us his joy. It can, it. it, it It cannot have what it clamors for. Those things that it clamors for just will not satisfy us forever. And the world can't give us his peace. Why? Because Jesus said that peace passes understanding. It's a peace that demonstrates a faith and a hope that God is in control no matter what. So church, when we do face persecution, be it very small or large, Whenever we uh, we encounter Satan's attempt to thwart the plan and the purpose of God, to make us live in fear so that we neglect our calling to the Great Commission, please keep in mind, as your rallying cry to the battle, if the world didn't give us these things, then guess what? The world cannot take them away. I'd invite you to stand up. You know, I love you and I love serving as your pastor. Um, And I want this to be our prayer again. we, We sang a prayer last week. And I'm, I'm gonna, we're going to sing our prayer again today. We're going to sing that song, The world didn't give us his love, the world won't give us his joy, the world can't give us his peace. And if the world can't give it, then the world can't take it away.